All right, good morning. Welcome to an, another week of our being scattered together. I just want to continue to thank you for your faithfulness in gathering this way. Uh, lots to cover this morning, so I want to jump right in, but thank you for being with us today in this way. I uh, pray it's a blessing to you. We're going to do what we do each week and uh, look at a passage from God's Word. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you there, a Bible app, whatever, would you open it with me to our passage here now in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17. Jesus is beginning a whole new section of his teaching within his broader teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to look now at the beginning of this section in verse 17 through 20. So read along with me. Jesus says this, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's God's word. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll just dive right into the Spirit of God. We ask you now to come and be present with us. Uh, illumine the preaching of your word. Open our eyes and our ears, our hearts, and our minds to receive whatever it is you want to show us, and then accomplish the good work through that in us that you want to do. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, it's a common misconception that, that I often hear, maybe you as well, that you hear from those desiring to be married one day, or maybe even those who are currently in a dating relationship pursuing marriage, this idea that, that marriage is somehow this magical finish line, or this magical mountain peak uh, of some kind, where once you've reached it, once you've, ha-ha, we've crossed over the threshold of that finish line together, now all of the work all of the pursuits, all of the effort involved in building your relationship over time, now will at last be completed. <sighs> and, and so now you can just simply enjoy the benefit of all your efforts in the utopian bliss of the days that follow. <sighs> you know, yeah, I love it. It's, it's a sentiment, however well-intentioned, that I think is quickly replaced with reality when you come to learn, and hopefully sooner than later, that, that yeah, Marriage, it doesn't replace, it doesn't, doesn't bring an end to the need for pursuits or, or effort or investment in a relationship. All marriage does is it transforms the purpose or the motivation behind those efforts and behind those investments in each other. Uh, what I mean by that is this. Just if you think about like before you're married, our efforts and our investment in a relationship are all about establishing the relationship itself, Right? It's about building connection with one another, earning each other's trust over time so that hopefully to one day you get to the place where you both feel confident entering into this uh, committed, exclusive, lifelong commitment of marriage to one another. That's kind of what you're moving towards and building towards. But once marriage comes, rather than replacing effort or replacing investment, what marriage does instead is it transforms those words, those words and deeds into things that are now done on the basis of or, or in celebration of this relationship that you now have with one another and no longer doing them in order to try to establish it. You do them on the basis of your relationship now. And I mention all that as we continue in this 
teaching series this morning through the Gospel of Matthew entitled Kingdom Come because, as we said, Jesus has concluded this opening section of his famous Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes, which if you remember, was simply all about what a blessed kingdom citizen must first be in order to carry out everything that Jesus teaches in the remainder of this sermon. We see that he now moves, as I said, into this whole new section of teaching, beginning at verse 17 and stretching all the way to the end of chapter 5 now. And he's teaching us now here in this section about how his kingdom citizens are to relate to the Mosaic law as well as the teaching of the Old Testament in general now that they've entered into an eternal committed relationship with him. And we're actually just going to be looking at the uh, introduction, at Jesus' introduction to this new section, to his sermon this morning, but uh, of this new section. But, but the point Jesus clearly makes here as it relates to everything that I just said about marriage and effort, is that all the efforts, all the investment formerly required to be in a relationship with God according to the Old Testament law are also not erased, not, not abolished to use Jesus' language in his coming. They're not erased. In fact, if you look at verse 17, Jesus speaks preemptively in order to ensure that no one comes to that mistaken conclusion on the basis of any of his teaching that follows. He's like, don't think I've come to abolish this. But, and and here's the good news, although no, he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, Jesus says he absolutely has come to fulfill them. He has come to fulfill them, which, as I hope you're going to see through the course of our time together in this passage this morning, is actually even better than if he had come to just abolish and wipe away those things. It's actually even better that he comes to fulfill them. And in order to help you see and really feel the good news of that, as well as to help us understand how it is that we today now, as as citizens of God's kingdom, how are we supposed to understand and relate to all that kind of confusing, sometimes really scary Old Testament stuff ourselves, all I want to do is just show you two key concepts that, that we see from this opening section of what Jesus says here. I want to show you just Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, and then Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophets. It's those two things. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Okay, so if, if you've closed your Bible, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to our passage here, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17. Follow along with me as we look at the way Jesus transforms our efforts uh, in, in his kingdom from trying to earn a right relationship with God to striving to obey his law instead on the basis of or in celebration of our relationship that we already have with him. Through Jesus. Now, to begin with, if you look at verse 17, again with me, you'll notice Jesus, again, he begins this new section of his teaching with these words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that, that idea of fulfillment is something that, if, you, if you've been with us through this series, we've already encountered a number of times in Matthew's gospel. It's a term, if you remember, that means to, to bring something to completion or, or to, to fill up something to its fullness. So, so that's what Jesus is saying he's come to do to the law and the prophets. He's come to fill them up, to, to bring them to completion. But, but very quickly, if, if you're not already familiar with those terms, the law... For a Jewish person, uh, as, as they would have been hearing this, meant the law of Moses, which uh, uh, generally speaking meant the first five books of the Old Testament, also called the Torah, 
And it included the, the Ten Commandments, but it also included all the other uh, moral, civil, and ceremonial laws uh, included, uh, handed down from God through Moses as well. Some actually 613 commandments actually. Uh, so it included all that in the law. And then the prophets, while yes, referring to individual prophets uh, through whom God spoke throughout the Old Testament, also was a shorthand way of referring to everything else written in the Old Testament after the law of Moses. So here's the first five books, that's the law. The prophets also just meant like everything else in the Old Testament. And I mention that not simply to help define Jesus' terms, but just so hopefully help you see that the law and the prophets, when they're placed side by side like this, actually means everything in the Old Testament scriptures. It means all of it. And so, yeah, although we're going to be looking at the way Jesus fulfills or brings to completion those, those two things individually or separately, I don't want us to lose sight of the big picture, as well as the incredible reality that what Jesus is claiming he came to fulfill here in our passage this morning is not only the law, but, but everything contained in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill all of that. Wow, incredible. But again, zooming in, we're going to look at how Jesus fulfills each one of those two things individually. So let's look, first of all now, at Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. So if you look now at verse 18 in, in our passage, look at it with me. As it relates to the law of Moses, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And, and this actually would have been something incredibly important for a Jewish audience to hear in particular, namely just like how, how seriously Jesus took the, the writings of Moses, or like all the Old Testament scriptures, took them incredibly seriously. So much so, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. These, these were some of the smallest markings like uh, crossed T's or punctua punctuation in, in written Hebrew. Not a, he says not even a, an iota or a dot would pass away from the law until everything intended to be accomplished by the law was accomplished. So incredibly important for them to hear. He takes those things seriously. And, and then, but it begs the question, okay, so what was the intended result of the law being fully accomplished? What was the intended result of the law being fully, fully kept? Well, according to verse 20, if you look there with me, Jesus, uh, where we, Jesus here, you see, he compares and contrasts the obedience to the law of his disciples with the most legalistic, law-abiding Jews of that day, namely the scribes and the Pharisees. We'll see that the intended result of the law being fully accomplished was righteousness. That was the intended result of the law being fully accomplished. Righteousness, which is, which is right standing before God, being legally declared not guilty before a holy God. Which is something we needed, actually, because if you don't know the backstory, from, from mankind's rebellion in the Garden of Eden right at the beginning, men and women had been separated from God because of our sin. That is, we were unrighteous, and therefore... Over the course of time, God had put this perfect law in place through his servant Moses in order to provide a means, uh, both for our sins to be atoned for through various sacrifices and so that we could learn that the law was really to show us, help us learn what it looked like to live life as God has, had it originally intended it for us when he first created us. Also that altogether, we could once again be righteous. We could, we could, we could have that Broken re relationship restored with Jesus once again. Restored with God through Jesus once again. That, or 
I guess at that time it wasn't through Jesus, it was through obedience to the law. I guess that's what it was looking ahead to. But all that idea was pointing to, to how we could have that right relationship with God. Here's the law, follow it, and you can have that right relationship. You can be righteous again, which sounds great. Okay, great. You've made a way for us to have that restored relationship with you. The big problem was, however, yeah, that nobody could do it. Nobody, not, not even the, the most devout and religious among them were able to keep the law perfectly. They couldn't do it. They all just kept failing to one degree or another and thus remained unable in their own strength to be righteous. They, they couldn't do it, which is undoubtedly what led the, the psalmist David to write in Psalm 14, no one is righteous, not even one. We just, we just we couldn't do it. But now here comes Jesus into that hopeless scene, coming in, saying that he's come to fulfill every last part of God's perfect law himself. He says, I've come to fulfill it, right down to the last iota and dot, all of it. How does he do that? That sounds great, but how? Great question. Well, as Tim Keller helpfully notes in his work on this passage, he says this, basically, there, when you think about it, there's, there's two ways to fulfill a law, at least two, generally speaking, ways to fulfill a law. Either fulfill a law by keeping it or by paying the penalty for not keeping it. That, that's, generally speaking, how we fulfill a law in, in life. And he illustrates his point just by using a simple stop sign that you see at a street corner. So he says this, quote, there are two ways to fulfill that law that, that says you need to come to a complete stop when you come to a stop sign when driving. One is you stop, right? One is you stop. The other is you go through the stop sign, you get a ticket, and then you pay the ticket. You, you pay the fine. But either way, whether you obey the law or whether you pay the penalty for breaking the law, you have now, in doing those things, fulfilled the law, and it can no longer condemn you because you fulfilled it. But the incredible thing about Jesus, as Keller goes on to add, is that when Jesus comes to earth in our place, he actually fulfills the law for us, but he fulfills it twice. He fulfills it for us twice, both by obeying every part of God's perfect law, so he fulfills it in that way of obeying it, and he also fulfills it by paying our penalty for breaking God's law in his death on the cross. He fulfills it in both ways, and maybe that sounds like overkill. You just kind of think, like, why? Like, why pay it twice? Like, if somebody came up to you after your dinner and was like, don't worry, I've covered the check for you, uh, but then said, and, and actually, I paid the bill for you twice, you'd be like, um, I mean, thank you, but why? Why would you do that? But actually, the reality is, we, we actually need both of these payment fulfillments from Jesus in order for his fulfilling of the law to actually be beneficial to us. Because here's the thing, in paying our penalty for breaking the law, Jesus clears our, our record of past failure. He, he wipes the slate clean of every ways that, all the ways that we've failed to obey God's law in the past. But in also obeying God's law perfectly, Jesus can now credit his perfect obedience to us, dealing with every failure to obey God's law in the future. Thus, covering both payments, making us truly righteous now for all time, past, present, and future. And, and, and I know when we come to a discussion like this, um, it, it always begs the question, okay, well, if, if Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, do we still need to obey it? Is there any sense that we still have to obey God's law if he's fulfilled it? Great question. And actually, if you look in the email, the service email that came out, there's actually going to be some for further study section, which will 
hopefully address some of those questions for you about how it is that, that we are to still obey the law and what that looks like today as it relates to the law of God. But what I want to do here is just focus in our, our time right now for this morning, focusing on the reality that he did it. Just focusing on the reality that he did it for us and, and why that means so much for us today. One of the easiest ways that, that I think about it is in thinking about one of the most heartbreaking scenes, which I can hardly read without choking up, even still to this day, from the classic novel Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, John Bunyan wrote this novel, Pilgrim's Progress, which is sort of an allegory of the Christian life and our journey from, from Christ saving us to, to reaching heaven. And he, there's this one scene where one of the uh, characters in the book named Faithful is describing this scene to his friend Christian where he's on his journey and he is pursued and attacked and beaten mercilessly by this unknown man, this, this stranger, he states this, listen, so as soon as the man overtook me, it was but a word and a blow, for down he knocked me and laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him, wherefore he served me so? You can tell this is old English, uh, not modern speech here. Wherefore he served me so? And he said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and beat me down backwards. So I lay at his foot as dead as before. When I came to myself again, I cried him mercy, but he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again, and he had doubtless made an end of me, but that one came by and bid him forbear. Now, Faithful is talk, telling in this story, he describes Jesus as actually that, that one who came and bid this one beating him down to, to stop to, to, to call off the attack, he describes him as this one, he says, who I noticed had holes in his hands and in his side. But then, in responding to his story, Christian says this to Faithful. He says, that man who overtook you was Moses. He spareth none, neither knoweth he how to show mercy to those that transgress the law. That's, that's I, I don't know if it's the same for you, but when I read that, I get choked up every time because Reading that, it just so painfully describes my own experience again and again of trying to keep God's law, trying to be good enough for God in my own strength, either before I knew Jesus, trying to be good enough for God, or even every experience I've had since knowing Jesus where I try to keep God's law in my own strength just again and again, time after time. It's this devastating, despairing, just pummeling experience of being crushed again and again under the impossible weight and demands of the law. And my guess is it's the exact same for you if, you if you've ever seriously tried to keep God's law, to follow, to be obedient to what it is he calls us to. And I, and I have no doubt it was the exact same for everyone in Jesus' day as well, even for these scribes and Pharisees who seemed so much better than everyone else at keeping the law. Every single one of us knows that experience of just like again and again, every time you try, no, no, not good enough. It's this crushing experience. But do you see, that's exactly what makes Jesus coming and fulfilling the law on our behalf and fulfilling it in both of those senses so free, as well as such an incredible gift. For as the Apostle Paul so powerfully states in Romans 8, because of Jesus fulfilling the law on our behalf, through faith in him, we are now totally free of any condemnation under the law any longer. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. For as Paul goes on to write, what the law was powerless to do, weakened as it was by the flesh, right? In our, in our human flesh and our human ability or strength, we weren't able to do it. What the law 
was powerless to do, weakened as it was by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and so condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Okay, so that's, that's the first part about what Jesus said he had come to earth to do, to, to, to be the fulfillment of the law. There, of course, there's, there's fathoms more depth we could go into there, but hopefully that helps you at least to see and to feel the incredible result of Jesus' fulfillment of the law on our behalf, that there is now no condemnation anymore for any of our failure to be able to keep it perfectly. In each time of any failure now, because he's fulfilled it on our behalf, there is now no condemnation for us because he's paid the penalty and he's credited his perfect obedience to us. The last thing I want to look at now is <clears throat> Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophets. Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophets, and, and this is good news actually for two reasons. First reason, as it relates to the, the, this being about individual prophets who spoke for God throughout the Old Testament, is because in fulfilling or bringing to completion their work, what, what Jesus is doing there is he's writing a perfect ending to their incomplete stories of great, greatness and faithfulness. He's writing the perfect ending to them. For Here, yeah, as you read through the Old Testament, you, you read about all these incredible stories of men and women, and, and they're striving to, to follow God and serve Him. I mean, you read about Abraham, Jacob, Moses, uh, Esther, Ruth, uh, David, Solomon, all these different people. And yet, in each of these stories, despite their amazing testimonies, yes, they accomplished amazing things, what you still see is weak, frail, failing individuals who, who fail to keep God's law in all kinds of different ways and whose, whose accomplishments and, and prophecies always maintain a shadow of, of not yet being fully complete, not yet being fully realized. Every single one of them. It happens, but, but not really happens. Always seems to be somewhat incomplete. So what that means is that what Jesus is saying here is that rather than just coming and erasing those incomplete stories as, you know, close but not close enough, so let's just get rid of those. No. What Jesus coming actually does it fills up it brings to completion what every one of their incomplete stories had only been pointing forward to that's what that's what jesus is saying by saying i've come to fulfill the prophets it means as, as you read through the old testament as as one author so beautifully put it i'm just gonna hit a few of these it means first of all jesus is the true and better adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us jesus is the true and better abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it himself. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, and who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. See, he, he brings all those incomplete stories and writes the perfect ending to them, which, which I'll tell you what, is, is incredible news. It's such good news for you and I today, because what it means is if Jesus can take all those incomplete stories and write the perfect ending to them, then maybe it means that Jesus can also take your incomplete story and mine and write a perfect ending to it as well. Not about you, but oh, I, I want that. I want Jesus to take all the incomplete, broken, misguided places of my life and write the perfect ending to it. 
just a perfect ending. Oh, God, fulfill that for me. Fulfill that for us. But the second reason Jesus is coming to fulfill the prophets is good news as it relates to this idea of the prophets, meaning like everything written in the Old Testament scriptures as well, is because what it means now is that every promise, every promise made by God throughout the Old Testament, beginning with the promise in Genesis 3.15 to come and send a rescuer to put an end to sin's curse, to, to the promise of Abraham to, to, to make uh, through one of his seeds uh, someone who would bless all the nations of the, of the earth, to, to the promise of David, that one of his offspring would sit on his throne for all eternity. All these promises on and on and on and on had now been fulfilled had now been brought to completion in the coming of Jesus to earth. As the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. That's what it means when he says, I've come to fulfill the prophets. And, and, and maybe that sounds like an overstatement. You're like, oh, okay, like, yeah, sure. Like maybe lots of prophecies in the Old Testament, they point ahead to Jesus, kind of like he's coming we, we look at some of those, but certainly not all of it. And it can't all be about Jesus and pointing ahead to him, right? And yet, when, when you look at or remember that epic Old Testament Bible study that Jesus took those two men on the road to Emmaus through uh, following his resurrection, we read about this in Luke 24. There we plainly read this, and beginning with Moses and the prophets. Okay, there's our two terms from today's passage again. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, this is Jesus, explained to them what was written in all the scriptures about himself. He's saying, it is all about me. It has all been pointing ahead to me, and it all finds its completion in me. <clears throat> but as you think about all the promises and prophecies Jesus fulfilled in his coming, one of, that has particular relevance to our passage today and has to do with the promise of God that he makes explicitly through some of the prophets like Isaiah, um, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Joel, uh, some of these prophets, and then certainly throughout many of the others. And it's this promise where he talks about putting his Holy Spirit within us. That's one of the promises that has particular relevance to what we're looking at today, which is actually something, it was, it was vitally important for Jesus' disciples that he's speaking to here in our passage, but it's also vitally important for us today. For along with, yes, expressing his endorsement of and then the seriousness with which he takes everything written in the Old Testament scriptures, if you look again at verse 20 of what Jesus says in our passage, remember he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When you look at that, and you, you take what Jesus says here seriously, you see how impossible being a citizen in his kingdom actually would be without this promise being fulfilled. It would just be impossible for us. For remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they were known by everyone Jesus is talking to, as just the, they were known for their like elite, like ninja level being able status of being able to seek to keep all 613 of those commands from the law of Moses and, and making sure to point out how everyone else was not keeping them as well. But then just imagine how Jesus' disciples would have heard this, how this would have sounded to them when, when, they, when Jesus is saying their righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. It'd just be like, what? That would be like telling a kid in grade eight, listen, unless your basketball skill exceeds that of LeBron James, you're never going to make the team. It'd be like your doctor telling you, unless your eating habits exceed the most granola, oat milk, kombucha drinking, uh, quinoa, 
tree bark eating healthy person you know, you're never going to be able to be healthy. It would, just be, it would just be this crushing, like, impossible demand. And yet, and yet, the, the, the dirty little secret that Jesus exposed about the scribes and the Pharisees over the course of his ministry was that, although outwardly, outwardly, yeah, they might look elite level and keeping all the rules inside, they were still as, as dark and stained and sinful as the worst sinner they knew. That's why Jesus referred to them as like whitewashed tombs. He's like, yeah, you look great on the outside. Inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. There is no life in you. However good you look at keeping the law on the outside, you're still as crushed under the impossible weight of the law as anyone else. And so, by making the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise to, to put his spirit within us possible, Jesus now makes it possible for you and for I to be truly righteous at, at a heart level, at a heart level, giving us not just the ability to keep God's law, but, but transforming the very motivation of our hearts so that we don't just keep God's law just by trying hard enough, but we actually want to, our heart's desire is to want to obey God's law, giving us a righteousness that does exceed the mere external righteousness of the Pharisees. It's a true, complete righteousness that covers both our behavior as well as the motivation behind our behavior. He does truly make us righteous in a way that far exceeds that mere external conformity. In one sense, Jesus' introductory words of this next section of his Sermon on the Mount, like talking about how a citizen in his kingdom relate to the Old Testament scriptures is fulfilling something that the Apostle Peter acknowledges later in his uh, second letter to the churches, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, namely that by fulfilling the law and the prophets, by doing what he said here and in placing his Holy Spirit within us, God's divine power has now given us everything we need for life and godliness. That, that, that God has fully equipped, we are fully equipped to live lives that are pleasing to God, and thanks to his eternal commitment to us in Jesus, able to live that pleasing way, not to try to earn our righteous standing for God, but because in Jesus, we already have it. See, we're able to live and obey out of that relationship now. Not that effort has been canceled, but we can now live out of that relationship, obey because we have the relationship, not in order to try to earn it. But I hope you see as well how Jesus coming to fulfill the law and the prophets and not to abolish them is also so important. And why the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus says he's not come to abolish are still so important to us today. I don't know if you've heard this yourself. I've, I've watched a disturbing trend from some churches over the last number of years in particular that say they want to just like, just abandon the Old Testament entirely. It's just this archaic Old Covenant, unconnected history that no longer has any relevance for New Testament believers. I don't know if you've seen that yourself. I hear that, and yet, man, just even reading our passage today, you've got to ask yourself, if Jesus himself didn't see the Old Testament scriptures as irrelevant, something that he'd come to just like do away with with his New Covenant upgrade, I think that ought to give us a great deal of pause before we come to the conclusion that, no, 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 maybe it was, it was essential for Jesus, but not for us. He, he thought it was important, but we, we don't need that anymore. Like, really? For here's the thing. Think about it. What, what we're given in the Old Testament, these incredible catalog of Old Testament books, what we're given along with the story of God's working through history to call the people to himself is the entire context that makes any sense of Jesus coming at all. Like, it, it makes, it's the context that makes Jesus coming make sense. For, for without knowing 
without knowing our origin story, without knowing how God had intended things to be before sin's curse wrecked everything, or or what it was that, that caused our relationship to be severed with God, how it is that we can have that restored, um, knowing the, the history of that God had created this people and that he had rescued them out of slavery without knowing about the temple and the sacrificial system, without knowing about failed kings and kingdoms or about the persistent rebellion and failure of God's people over time to remain faithful to him. Without, just by abolishing that, just by wiping the hard drive of all that stuff, how on earth are we supposed to understand Jesus' statement in verse 17 in our passage as the incredible good news that it actually is? How would we even know that this is good news without all of that context? This would be like beginning Lord of the Rings with Frodo back in the Shire, ring of power destroyed, and everyone just like having a party. Uh, It'd be like beginning Avengers Endgame with Thanos wiped out all the disappeared, vaporized people back, and everyone laughing with each other. (laughs) Starting the Star Wars movies with long ago in a galaxy far away, the Rebels won. Like... (laughs) We might recognize those beginnings as, as good and positive, but without all that history and story and context, we wouldn't have the slightest idea as to why they were such good news. That's why it's so important. And that's exactly why Jesus didn't come to abolish any of that, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its perfect ending, to write the perfect ending to that story. But we're going to see more in the coming weeks about how Jesus' kingdom citizens are still to relate to the law and prophets, even as new covenant believers. But, but, but for today, my prayer for each one of us is that we could just simply pause and celebrate and rejoice and rest in the truth that in his coming to earth, Jesus truly did fulfill both the law and the prophets for us in a way that no one else could. And he fulfilled them in both senses, in both ways that we needed, both in completing it and paying the penalty for it. And may we also celebrate and rest in the fact that although our efforts to live according to the law of God are are not erased, are not abolished, they are, because of Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the prophets, our, our, our efforts to follow him are now transformed as we are freed to obey him now on the basis of and in celebration of our restored relationship with God and no longer as a means of trying to earn our acceptance with him. He has earned all of that on our behalf. And we can just live and love and follow and serve him on the basis of and in celebration of that truth. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.